The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Morning, everyone, and welcome. Our first, third service of the fall. Thank you for being here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So may we hide your word in our heart that we might know you and follow you all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited to be back preaching for you this morning. It's been about a month or so, maybe a little longer. And during that time, our family did a number of things. One of the things we did was we went to Lake Powell, which is in Arizona and Utah. If you've been there, you know it's stunningly beautiful. It's this massively large lake. And we went with another family and we stayed on a houseboat for almost a full week. So imagine a really large Winnebago on a boat, like a, a pontoon boat with bedrooms. And we have three sons. The family we went with has four, plus a couple of other cousins, plus a daughter and her husband and a baby, all on a boat for a week. It was kind of awesome in so many ways. But you're probably wondering, how did Alyssa and the other mother survive? Which is a fair question. They did. We're still married. And we didn't max out the gray water. No one drowned. I didn't injure myself trying to act as young as my boys. So all in a very successful boy family trip. But now we're back. All of us are back. And we're beginning the fall, though I think we should all agree that fall no longer exists in Austin, Texas whatsoever. 108 degrees or something this past week. But some of you kids are beginning school tomorrow. Others will begin later on this week. And so the question is, what now? What now that the fall, quote unquote, is beginning? 
And what more than anything will determine the contours and the outcome of your fall or your year or all your years? What more than anything will determine the contours and the outcome of your life? Jesus, in his famous parable of the sower that Brent just read for us, tells us. So two points this morning. A paradigm for God and a taxonomy of people. First of all, a paradigm for God. We're in the midst of a summer series, ending a summer series on Jesus's parables. We've been in it since the beginning of July. We'll continue on through the next month. I actually preached on this passage five years ago, uh, did several weeks on it. I'll just do two this time around. And many of you are here, but you may know many of you weren't because a third of our congregation has come in the last two years. And five years ago, when I preached on this, we had 400 people in worship. We had over 400 people in our second service this morning alone. So many of you are new and haven't heard anything about what I'm going to say. But for all of us, notice how this parable begins. Matthew gives it a very specific introduction. In verse one, he says, the same day Jesus went out of the house. And then in verse three, the first words we hear Jesus speak are, a sower went out to sow, showing us that Jesus is the subject of his own parable. What Jesus describes a farmer doing is what he himself is doing on a spiritual level. He too is sowing or planting seeds. And that's the analogy, that he as God in the flesh, God himself is like a farmer seeking to plant spiritual seeds that will sink deeply into the souls, the very hearts of people, just like you, like me, take root and burst forth into new life. This parable, it's one of my favorites. It really is paradigmatic. It gives us a framework by which we're not only simply to see and understand God, but all of life. Because this world is a world in which so many sowers go out to sow all sorts of different seeds, and they get implanted because we're meant to understand ourselves as being like soil. Those that have been created in order that we might receive something from outside of us. It might come into us, take root, bear fruit, and even begin to become a part of us. We're like soil. And God is paradigmatically one who earnestly desires for people to know him. And so earnestly that he goes out after them where they are, as they are. And he casts forth his word like a a farmer sowing seeds in order that his word might take root in them and change their lives. And this is God. This is our world. This is us. So ask yourself, do I imagine God like this and me in relationship to him and to the world like this. Don't miss the little detail in verse one about Jesus going out and notice where he sits. He, he goes and he sits beside the sea. Verse two tells us that the crowds became so great that he went out a little bit further and sat on a boat in order to talk to all of them. And it makes me wonder, why did he go out and sit beside the sea? We oftentimes find him teaching here besides the sea. So Why? And one answer is simply historical. This is what happened. This is what Jesus and many teachers like him would do. They would, they would go and they would teach from the seashore because so often in parts like in that part of the world, there are these rocky cliffs. They, they form natural amphitheaters so that people are gathered. Their word carries off over the waters and bounces off the rocks so many people can hear them. So one answer is that this is simply what happened. But what if we were to read these introductory words spiritually and representing more than just historical detail? I've told you so many times before that in the scriptures, the sea often represents all that is wrong with our world. Ancient Near Easterners understood the sea like that as representing everything that's dark 
and powerful and chaotic and overwhelming in this world, especially in the midst of a storm. The sea for them represented death. So think about this scene like this through this lens, that Jesus goes out from where he is, from the safety of a house down to the sea, down to where all the masses of the people and all the crowds are, and he sits down on the edge of death. And he speaks his life-giving words to those who are near to death. What if we were to read this passage that way? If we were, some of you might more easily be able to see yourself in it, in and among the crowds, because right now in your life, this is where you are, on the edge of death, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of the confusion of this world, in some way, because of something, separation or divorce, or addiction, maybe because of foolish, selfish choices that you have made that have been harmful to you and to others, maybe some things that have been done to you, or maybe just because you're new. You're new to Austin. You've moved here this spring. You've moved here this summer. Many people have. Maybe you've come chasing something, chasing a person or a job or a new life, a new culture, one that's a little bit more interesting, maybe a little bit intoxicating, unlike the place that you came from, but you're now beginning to realize that what you too sings in their famous song is true, that you still haven't what? Still haven't found what it is that you're looking for. Or maybe it's a loved one, a child who's struggling. You're fearful for them, crushed emotionally because of them. Regardless, you know chaos right now. You know what it's like to be on the edge of death in some form right now. So what do you especially need to hear this morning? You need to hear what I've already said, that Jesus has gone out, but he has gone out for you. He has gone out from where he was, the very house of heaven, and has come to sit before you, where you are, as you are, regardless of who you are, in order that he might speak his words that are full of life to you, that you might hear them and be changed. In fact, that's what's happening even right now. This is part of what happens in worship. So what this parable shows us paradigmatically about God is that he so earnestly desires, relentlessly desires to be near people and to have them hear his word speak that he comes for us. Anne Lamont is a fairly famous Christian author. Some of you may know her work. She's also fairly controversial, but this is what she says and how she describes God upon the first time she met him and came to know and to believe in him. She said, I did not mean to be a Christian. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time were, I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond, who you may know is kind of an old reference, but the senator who advocated for segregation. Anyways, she goes on. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, but as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewing outside your door, you'll eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, you're screwed. And the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping on your chest at dawn to play. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in green eggs and hams. I would not, could not in a boat. I would not, 
could not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses or something dumb like that. Anyway, Jesus wore me out. He won. The moment of my conversion, I said, dang it, come in. I quit. And he started sleeping on my bed that night. And Anne is right about this, friends. She is right. The God of the Bible is relentless. And he goes out after people, just like you, just like me, because he longs to be near you, whomever you are, and for you to hear his word. But as we all know, it's hard to hear God in this world. And so this parable explains why, by giving us point two, a taxonomy of people, a categorization of how we hear and respond to his word. And I'll go into a little bit more detail next week on these soils, but today I just want to give you an overview. That is, there are four soils, and every one of us here is one of these soils. We fit within this parable. So wonder with me which soil you are. The first soil is described in verse 4 and verse 19. In verse 4, Jesus calls it a path because that's the main experience of this soil. It's not receiving seeds so much as receiving feet. So Jesus goes on to explain in verse 19 that this person represents, or this soil represents a person in whom the word, his word, never fully sinks in because they're so hardened by all the activity of the world. This first soil is trampled soil. It's trampled by all that's going on in this world, by the big breaking news that's always being broadcast to us, or even the little news of our own lives or the lives of those around us. And that is what makes the greatest impression upon this type of person. It's like foot after foot after foot on a path, compressing it and compacting it, making it more and more pressed down and less and less porous. And this is some of you. You're constantly and uncritically hearing and taking in and dwelling upon everything that's going on culturally in our world or politically in our country or socially in the circles around you, like step after step on a path, so much so that you've become a path. And like being on a path, you're carried along by whatever it is that others are doing or saying. So are you this type of soil? And regardless if you are or not, We all have to acknowledge how constantly the world with all its messages hits us and lands upon us. So much so that five years ago when I preached on this passage, things have dramatically changed. For example, five years ago, the social media app TikTok, y'all heard of it? Just kidding. In the last five years, its viewership among Gen Z, ages 15 to 25, basically my son's age, it's its viewership has grown by 4,600%. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know there's that many people in the world. But among Gen Z, a quarter of them spend five hours or more a day on TikTok. Half of them spend three hours a day on Netflix. Now, no moral judgment on Netflix or TikTok. The point is, our children are a microcosm for us all when it comes to how constantly the words of this world and others hit upon us. They are the canary in the coal mine for everything that's happening in our world, especially in regards to technology and technology's impact on us mentally, emotionally, and theologically. This is the first soil. It is hardened, trampled soil. 
Second soil is described in verses five and six, and then also later on in verse 20 and 21, Jesus calls it rocky soil in verse five, which can be a little bit misleading if we don't understand his context there in Palestine, because both then and now, much of the soil is very shallow, and it's thinly laid on top of a limestone shelf. And so that topsoil, it's very nutrient-rich because Even in this day still, there's a dew-like rain that settles upon much of the ground in that area. So seeds that hit that rich soil, shallow soil, they spring up immediately. But then when the Middle Eastern sun comes out, those shallow-rooted plants that have sprung up, they get scorched. That's the language Jesus uses here. It gets cooked. And unlike the first soil, these people are professing Christians. According to verse 20, it says that they hear his word about him. They immediately receive it with joy, like a seed immediately sprouting and becoming a plant. But they only profess faith and follow Jesus. Verse 21 says, for a while, which I don't love that translation. Uh, It'd be better, I think, more straightforward to read it very literally. And literally it says, yet he has no root in himself, but is temporary. And when Martin Luther translated that those words is temporary into German. For the first time, he used these, these German words, vetter vintage. Vetter is the word for weather. Vintage is the word for change. It's related to our English word for wind. So he says they're weather change people. They're like weather vanes on the top of a barn or a building, and they turn depending upon which way the wind is blowing. And in the end, this person's not defined by what they are, or what they have, but more so what they do not have. Verse five and six, it says, there's not much soil. There's no depth, no root. And so is this you? Profess faith in Christ right now, but your joy, your interest, your excitement in being a Christian isn't what it once was. And there are new winds blowing upon you. Maybe you're turning. This is the second soil. It's shallow. But then the third soil, It's described in verse seven and verse 22. It's thorn-filled. Jesus interprets the thorns in verse 22 as two things. Number one, the cares of this world. And then secondly, the deceitfulness of riches. And similar to the previous soil, this person professes faith in Christ because here also with this soil, the seed of Jesus's word sinks in, but it sinks in and is immediately surrounded by so many other seeds. And so the capital S seed of, of Jesus's word gets wrapped up and choked, that's the language he uses, by all the other seeds and all their other demands and worries so that Jesus' seed never actually grows because there's no room. Very simply, there's no room in the soil of this person's heart because it's too crowded, which is why I think there's no mention of joy with this soil. Because like with the previous soil or person, it says that he receives it with joy, but not this person because there's simply no room for much enthusiasm or excitement about any one thing because there's so many things, too many things in this person's life. Their soul is split or divided or fractured. In fact, the Greek word behind the English word cares right there is literally just that. It means split or divided or fractured. We could say instead of the cares of this world, the pulls of this world the way in which their heart is pulled in so many different directions. That's why there's no joy. Because there's no singular highest good. There's no greatest delight. There's no primary foundation or singular primary goal to which they orient all of their life. There's so many things pulling them in all these different directions, making them too tired for much joy or delight in any one thing. 
And another difference between this soil and the last is that there's, there's no dramatic departure here, like with the last soil. The last soil, it says that they fall away or they drop out, not this one. With this soil, there's no drama. There's no scene. There's no scandal, just a gradually increased squeezing with less and less air breathed into their faith, along with more and more apathy, a little bit more and more disinterest, a little less participation in the life of God's people or in worship with a little bit more focus on the pulls or the cares of this world. And Jesus's word eventually just becomes a distant whisper or a forgotten echo in the recesses of their mind and everything else all around is getting louder and louder and louder. 40 million Americans have stopped worshiping at a church in the last 25 years. Imagine that, 12% of the population. In an article entitled The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Have Stopped Going to Church, Jake Meter, the author, he says that this represents the largest concentrated change in religious observance in American history. 40 million. And he says that they've done so, referencing this book called The Great Dechurching, because of the way in which American life is set up the way it works in the 21st century. He says, contemporary American life isn't set up to promote much of what Christianity values, like mutuality and relationship, truly being known and knowing others, or having a sincere care for others, or a committed common life. Rather, he writes, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy or forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life, or as one ages to the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that simply doesn't add up anymore. Hear what he's saying? He's saying that millions of Americans have shown over the past 25 years that their souls are crowded soil. And so what about yours? What about mine? Are we this soil? Are, are we any of these three souls? But here's the question that we have to end with. And that is, back to the beginning, what word has sunk deepest into your soul? Words about disappointment, words about workism and success and the ways that you have disappointed yourself or others or failed. Words that say things like, if you don't achieve, if you aren't this, if you don't get into this group or you don't get to live in this neighborhood or this school or a part of these people, then you're nothing. Then you don't matter. You're unwanted. So words of rejection, have they sunk deepest into your soul? Or words of betrayal by an ex-husband or an ex-spouse, an ex-wife? Words about your physical beauty or your physical strength. And maybe you had that. Maybe you never had it and it marked you, but maybe you had it and no longer have it. And that's marked you. Or maybe words of praise have turned into self-praise. And now you can't celebrate others' victories or compliment others because you feed your soul on people noticing you. And anytime somebody else gets noticed, it grates upon you. And makes you wonder if you are somehow less than. Or maybe it's simply words of, of spoken by parents years and years ago. And they, they still hang on in your soul. Whatever it may be, what word or words have sunk deepest into your soul? And beyond that, what words get sown the most often in your heart through what you hear? Because most likely, what words get sown the most often 
will be the words or word that sinks deepest. And whatever word sinks deepest into your soul will be that more than anything else that determines the contours and the outcome of your life or soil. What if it was this word? What if it was, I am very dark, but lovely, which is the first thing we read in our Old Testament reading from the Song of Songs, chapter one, verse five there. Do you know that the Song of Songs is romantic Hebrew love poetry? Little Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until they were bar mitzvahed because that's the genre. And it's about the romantic love, God-given romantic love between a husband and a wife. And here the wife speaks, she speaks first and she says of herself, I am very dark. And then she goes on and she talks about how her brothers made her go outside and to tend this actual garden, but the, the sun burned her skin. And in that context, tan skin, dark skin wasn't a sign of beauty. And so she says, I haven't kept metaphorically the beauty of my physical body. And now the world sees me as unwanted and as ugly. I am very dark, she says, but lovely. There's one who sees her with eyes different than the world, who sees her with the eyes of grace and wants her and is intoxicated by her. So later on in chapter four, he speaks. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Then he describes her eyes. Then he describes her hair. He says, like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I promise in that context, it was a compliment. I wouldn't suggest any of you husbands trying to use that. It's not going to get you very far, but her flock, her hair is like a flock of goats. And then he describes her teeth. And he says, her teeth are, are like um, a flock of shorn ewes. They're like sheep come up from their washing, all of which bears twins. None of them have lost their, their young. They're clean, they're straight, and they're all there, which in the days before fluoride, that was a big deal. So he describes her, and then he goes on to describe her mouth. He describes every part of her in chapter four because he's so completely intoxicated by her. So is she very dark or lovely? And what about you, male or female, with God? Very dark or lovely? The answer is yes. We all are very dark because of our own sin of which we are guilty and damaged, but also the sin of others, which also has harmed and continues to harm. But there is one who sees us all with different eyes, with the eyes of grace and wants us. So much he has gone out for us, for you, whomever you are, whatever your life has been, and he desires you. He desires to be near to you and for his word to be the word that sinks deepest into your soul. He so longs for you to know him and to love him back like a groom longs for his bride on a wedding night. So great is his love and his grace toward you that Jesus himself went out from heaven and he was willingly snatched away by all the dark powers of this world. And then he was scorched under the false judgment of this world against him, but even also, and even more so, the true judgment of God against our sin. He was choked and he died on the cross that he might rise, having defeated death and hell in order to forgive us and to sow the word of his grace into our souls. And so make room for him. Friends, make 
room in your soul for him. As James says, receive the implanted word. It's there. It's already there, but now receive it. So whatever obstacles or competitors there are to his word in your life, remove them. Do so very practically, whatever they may be, place, a practice, a person, something you constantly listen to and open yourself up to, listen less and listen more to God's word. May that be the the word that gets sown most often here in worship. Regardless of what happens this fall, make this your routine. Be here in worship. And then take God's word yourself. Read it. A devotional, a, a reading plan. Read it. And don't simply read it by yourself. Read it with other Christians in a small group, in a study. There's so many here at our church. Join one of those. You cannot be a Christian on your own. You cannot in this life hear God by yourself very often or very easily. And whatever it is that you hear, by faith, do what you hear. By faith, do what you hear. Make room for his word. I promise you, promise you, it will bear fruit. The fourth soil, it's the simplest soil. Do you notice that? Shortest description. It's simply called good. And what makes it good is that it's cleared out of what fills all the other three soils. It is open and ready to receive what God has to say. So make room and listen. You will bear God's fruit in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray by your spirit, for the sake of your son, you would enable us to hear his word to us that we might be changed, that we might be made new, not only for ourselves, but ultimately for your honor, for your good, but also for the good of others around us and this world, which needs to know of you. So Father, may you continue as you have promised to always do so, sow your word in us, and may we receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.